you want to turn, we're going to be in Genesis 22 today. First um, book of the Bible, chapter 22, continuing our series on the names of God. Before I jump in, I just want to say one thing. We're going to do a guy's study again this summer. We did one last summer. At, it was either 32 or 33 guys that were part of that. And I mean, they hung, they hung in there the whole summer, and it was really great study. We went through the book, The Four Pillars. Thursday morning group did a different book, but they ended up doing The Four Pillars in the spring. So it ended up that out of the big group, um, the Thursday was smaller. Out of the big one, two groups formed that worked all summer that met, I mean, this whole school year. So Richard, thank you for that. Matt, for, for helping lead that. And one of the books everybody did at some point this year was that Four Pillars by Stu Weber. And people loved that book and him so much that we're going to do another Stu Weber this summer. We're going to do the book Tender Warrior. Um, anything Stu writes is really good. And I just really encourage you to be there. What I loved last year is not only did we have like 32, 33 guys that showed up, they were consistent. It was very intergenerational. We had a teenager in the group. We had guys that were my age and a little bit older. I mean, it was a very broad mix. And we are wanting to become not just multi-generational with, with different generations here. We want to become intergenerational. We want to, to have people mixing across generations. So if you are interested, you can sign up. There's a sheet in the way out. We'll have a way next week to sign up online. But really challenge you men to be thinking about doing this. It's very well worth, um, worth the investment. So Genesis 22. Um, we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac this morning. And just a little background, because again, I don't know, there's always some people here who the Bible maybe is new for them, relatively speaking, so I just want to do a quick um, setup for this. Abraham was the founder of the Jewish nation, and God called him and his wife Sarah, he was called Abram at that time, but called him out of his homeland, he said, I'm going to go to a place I'm going to show you, it ended up being Canaan, and he left there. At the age of 75, Sarah was 65. And God promised him, he said, I'm going to give you a son because they did not have a child. And even though she's at an age, she can't have a son. I'm going to give you a son. From that son, I'm going to create a nation. That nation will bless all nations. And out of that nation would come the Messiah, who would be the Savior for all nations. So that's the promise that God had made. And they, so they go to the land. They wait a whole 25 years before they get the promised son. Can you imagine waiting that long at that age um, for that son? But finally, he comes, and it's Isaac, and they have the son of promise. And so we come to Genesis 22. So I hope you're there in your Bible. Genesis 22, and we're going to start in verse 1. And here's what it said. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and here I am, he replied. And then God said, I mean, take this in, okay? Take your son, your only son. Whom you love, Isaac, and you go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice them him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Wow, there is a lot there. Let me hit a few things if you don't mind. One, Isaac, we don't know how old he was, was but most commentators, scholars think he was a late teen, early 20-year-old when this happened. Um, and he told them he wanted him to go to the region of Moriah to a mountain he would show him there. And I want to show you that region of Moria. It's actually where Jerusalem sits. It's a very hilly area. If you've been there, a lot of hills that are there. You guys have been there. You know how, how hilly that whole place is. This is a topographical map of Jerusalem. It's in the time of Jesus. 
Um, you can see the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, where the city of David was. But there's, there's numerous hills and ridges. I, I haven't even highlighted all of them in that whole area. Um, and there's really good reason to believe that the ridge where God took him with Isaac was this spot. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Um, and then we're told in verse 1 also that this was a test. Unbeknownst to Abraham, it was a test. Now, every time I read that in the Bible, especially when I came to Christianity and like brand new, every time I read that, it kind of made my skin crawl a little bit because I'm like, what? God like tests people? Um, because how many of us like to take tests in school? I had one person served first service who loves tests. Most of us don't, right? Don't love to have tests. Yeah, I was like, be careful with like doing your glasses right now because I'm just going to, I'm going to immediately think, oh, you're, you're a person that loves tests. Um, you'd want to keep those hands down, right? It's just, I'm teasing somebody um, that I care about. Anyways, um, where was I? Like squirrel, right? Uh, um, tests are not meant to be negative. They're actually positive. If you ask anybody in education, I'm married to somebody in education, a teacher, tests are not meant to make, put people, students through the ringer just so a teacher can just enjoy watching them sweat. That's not the point. Tests are to reveal to a student where they are, if they've learned what they should at that point, and also to prepare them, to form and prepare them for where they're going, to make sure that they, that they have what they need. Um, so tests are actually positive things. Next week, we're going to be in a text, text that talks about tests, and I'm going to talk more about this. There's a really cool thing in education philosophy I want to share with you. But let me just give you an illustration of how tests are meant to be positive. Um, when our son Kieran learned to fly at K-State Salina as part of his program, learned to fly a plane, one time he was up with his instructor, and as they were flying, the instructor reached over and pulled the throttle back that simulates, air fail that simulates engine failure. And he said, okay, your engine just failed. What are you going to do? Now, do you think that teacher meant for him to fail that test, was giving that to watch him cringe so he would fail? I mean, he didn't want that to fail, right? Because if that test fails, they're both gone, right? <laughs> yeah. He gave him that test because he had learned what to do, and Kieran told me it's ALARMS is the, the acronym of things they work through, and so he could sit there in a live situation, and he could work through that and do all the things he was supposed to do. And that teacher did that to him multiple times because he's trying to let Kieran see, did he really, did he internalize what he learned? Did he, could he make it work here so that Kieran could know? And the first time it doesn't go very well, Kieran said, maybe even the second, third but the whole point is also to form him so that one day, if he is in the air and his engine goes out, he knows exactly what to do and he'll do it on instinct. So you see, tests are positive things. They're not negative. So we'll say more about that next week. Um, now to the command to sacrifice Isaac. God's asking him to willingly give up his son by taking his life. And I don't know about you. To me, there's a little bit of a cringe factor to that. But I do want to say... If you don't know the story, we'll see that God really has no intent of him to do this. But still, it doesn't matter. This is a really hard ask. Is this not a hard ask? I mean, that's an understatement. The understatement of the century, this is a hard ask. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. On several levels, this request makes zero sense. Number one, this is his son of promise. This is the one through whom God is going to build a nation the Messiah is going to come from. And he's like, you're going to take him away from me. And he hasn't, the nation hasn't even formed. Like, it makes no sense to me. Um, and we waited 25 years to get him, and now we've enjoyed him for a few years, and now you're asking this to happen? So it makes no sense. But not just because he's a son of promise, but simply because of the fact that he is a son. That word occurs 13 times in this text. It's so important. Son. 
And it, it just to emphasize the deep emotion of this. Three times in the text it says, your beloved son, your only son, just to emphasize for a father what this would be like. I mean, to me, it's unimaginable. Um, if I were Abraham, I would have said, no, thanks. And I would have bailed on the whole thing. Like, I'm kind of done with this nation-building thing, if that's what you're going to ask. But look at verse 3, because Abraham is a much better man than I. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. Early the next morning, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Like I said, I would have been out of there, but Abraham obeys, and his obedience to me is incredible because it's instantaneous. No hesitation. He gets up early. And he starts to prepare and do the very thing that God asked him to do. Charles Stanley is famous for saying, obey God and leave the consequences to him. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And I'm, I'm so impressed. So verse 4, on the third day, ever hear that phrase before? Uh, I wish I could talk more about that. I don't have time this morning. But on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So to me, it's amazing. His faith is so unwavering. Not only does he obey instantaneously, but for three days, he's been able to think about this, and is he going to do it? And his faith is not only instantaneous, but it's sustained. So I'm so impressed with him. So verse 5, he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will worship and come back to you. How can he say that? Well, I want to show you. When he's... He's going up the mountain to sacrifice his son, right? Well, here's what the book of Hebrews tells us about Abraham, and I want you to, to read this with me. In chapter 11, verses 17 and 19, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So what was he convinced was going to happen? He was going to sacrifice him, and then God was what? Was going to raise him from the dead. So he really did believe they were going to come back together. So look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. I love that. I mean, if you're a dad, this is how you talk to a son, right? Father, yes, my son. The rest of verse 7, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood on it. He bound up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is a teen, or early 20s, okay? This is an old 100-year-old man. Isaac could have wrestled him and said, no way, right? But he didn't. So verse 10, then he reached out his hand. I mean, this is, wow. He took the knife Slay his son. Can you imagine the moment of truth? He reaches out his hand, grabs a knife, raises it high to plunge into the heart of his son. I can't even imagine. But verse 11. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Okay, here's the angel of the Lord again. He's been so many of these stories. 
But this time he's not appearing in a physical body, in a physical way like he has in all the other ones. This time it's just his voice from heaven. But I just want you to remember, this is Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, that's speaking. Um, and again, if you're really interested in that angel of the Lord, Jack and I did a podcast about a week and a half ago to talk about, you know, why is he the Lord? Why is he Jesus? What's the scriptural evidence for that? So if you haven't listened to that and are curious, jump in. But back to verse 11. The angel of the Lord, so Jesus, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, twice this time. First time it was just once his name. Abraham, Abraham, like stop. And he says, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And again, if you're new to the Bible, that word, that fear God phrase can uh, be a little cringeworthy. It can sound like a cowering, servile fear. Jerry Bridges in his book, on the joy of fearing God, defines it this way, a profound sense of reverential awe toward God. And I love that definition. Nothing more, nothing less. But verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So the ram was a substitute for him. And verse 14, so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I, I, if you look at this text deeply, the divinity of the angel of the Lord is so clear in this text. And then verse 19, then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So verse 14, the key verse in this text, if you're into underlining your Bible, underline verse 14. Where Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, it reads literally, so Abraham called that place Yahweh Yaira. Yahweh Yaira. And that is a name of God. That's our next name. Yahweh Yaira. I am your provider. Would you say Yahweh Yaira with me? Yahweh Yaira. You've probably heard it, Jehovah Jaira, um, but Yahweh Yaira is the name. I am your provider. A lot of scripture speaks to God as a provider and his provision. I think one of the most famous is Psalm 23, 1. Where in the King James it says, The Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh Rohi, I shall not want. In the NIV, I lack nothing. In the New American Standard, I will not be in need. The NLT, I have all that I need. And there's hundreds of stories in the Bible as God as provider. And we're going to look at one next week in the book of Exodus. But I think perhaps the most famous story of God providing is actually a story of Jesus, who is Yahweh Yireh, the provider. And it occurs, it's the only miracle in all four Gospels outside of the resurrection, and it's the feeding of the 5,000, which really was 15,000 people. And it was there that Jesus showed himself to be Yahweh Yireh, the provider, the great provider. And he not only demonstrated it, but he spoke to it. In Luke 12, Jesus said this. Turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everything, about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them, and you are far more valuable to him than any birds. He will certainly care for you. 
Why do you have so little faith? Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and He will give you everything that you, what? Everything that you need. Paul in Philippians 4.19, probably another text we all know about God's provision, says, My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Or the NLT, I like how it puts it. This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus. So scripture is clear. God is Yahweh Yireh. It's all over the pages. But I want to take this concept, I want to drill down a little deeper with it because there's something really cool here. In Hebrew, that word Yireh comes from the root word ra'ah, which means to see. Do you want to say ra'ah with me? Ra'ah. Okay, the word to see, and it carries this very rich meaning of seeing beforehand, seeing beforehand, and we see this actually in our English word provide, which means to make provision for the future, to arrange, to plan, to take care of, to supply the needs of. Our English word comes from the Latin word, and I don't know how to say Latin, but I'll give it a shot, um, providere, I'm not sure, which means, now look at this, to look ahead, to act with foresight, not forsyth, but foresight, to prepare, to supply. And in Latin, pro means ahead of time, and videre means to see. Again, to see beforehand, to see beforehand. So look again at our English a little more closely, right? Provision, provide. So to provide is the act of seeing beforehand a need and working to meet that need. That's what the meaning in this. It's so, to me, this is so rich, this idea. Every time I think of God as Yahweh Yireh, as my provider, this is how I think of it. He's the God who saw a long time ago what I needed. He's been at work at it to meet that need when the time comes. So, and I want you to think of this in that way. So I want you to see there is a relationship between God seeing and God providing. We could say that God's vision leads to his provision. In other words, having prevision of a need, God makes provision for that need. Is that not cool? Is that not cool? Let me apply it to the story. This is really powerful for me. You see, years before Genesis 22 happened, God saw to it that a little male lamb was born to a particular ewe in this region of Moria. And God watched over and took care of that little male lamb till it grew up into a ram. And he took care of it every day. And on this particular day of Genesis 22, that ram got lost from the, the, the herd, not the herd. You can tell I grew up in cattle country. From the flock, got lost from the flock and made his way to this mountain. And if somebody were making a movie, here's how I imagine it. As Abraham and Isaac are walking up one side, the ram is coming up. The other side. And as Abraham is tying up Isaac, that ram is getting tied up in a thicket nearby. Because you see, God's prevision led to his provision for Abraham. His prevision led to his provision. And it's the same with us. We've already learned that God is El Roe, the God who sees. He not just sees ahead of time and knows, but he also works to provide because he sees beforehand. 
I think so many times, even before I'm aware of a need I have in my life, God has seen it way in advance, and he's already been at work arranging things, making things happen, so at the right time, in the right place, and in the right way, that's the key, and in the right way, that he meets that need, because he's known about it way sooner than ever I did, and he meets that need uh, no sooner, no later than the exact time, right? God's rarely early, but never late. I mean, you see that in this story. And here's what is important to me as I think about this. Abraham learned a very significant thing about God that day. He learned that he's Yahweh Yaira. He names him that, that he's his provider. And think about it. If Abraham had stopped, if he had refused to obey, or if partway on that three-day journey, he had bailed on the whole thing, do you understand he would have never met and known God as his provider? He would have missed the opportunity to see that provision. And I just wonder how many times in my own life my disobedience or my trying to figure out how to meet a need, and I like squirrel everything around it, and I try to work it to my wisdom, how many times maybe I've missed out on God's provision and seeing him and experiencing him more deeply as God who is my provider. Okay, two things I want to share for you, for you, with you, two key things I learned about God's provision from this story. Number one, God does not always provide in the way we expect. And we just saw it in the story. In verse five, Abraham thought he was coming back with his son. How did Abraham think God was going to provide for him? What do you think, Abra- I mean, how did Abraham think God was going to provide? What do you think God was going to do? Raise his son from the dead. Is that how God provided? Not at all. God provided in a different way. Whose provision would you have rather had if you're Abraham? How he envisioned it, plunging the knife into his heart, God raising him from the dead, or God providing the ram? Wouldn't you rather have God's provision? And I find that so often in my life that rarely does God provide in the way that I expect it, and in the time that I expect it. Do you not find that in your own life? Like rarely do I find it that way. That he knows what I truly need and he knows when I need it. And I don't know what I truly need. I think I know. And I think as parents, you get that distinction, right? We, we know as a parent the difference between an expressed need by a child and what they truly need, right? Like one of our kids one time at a meal said, Dad, I've got a great idea. How about every meal, breakfast, lunch, supper, we just do ice cream. I think that'd be awesome. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Somebody out there, yeah, like, I'm, I'm all in on that one. Yep, I know what he's taken home from the sermon day. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Um, but you, you understand the difference between an express need and a real need. And I don't always get it, but I'm learning more and more that I'll take God's provision over my idea of what the provision should be. That his is always best. I forgot to put that up there. But the second one is even more important. That not only that God doesn't always provide in the way I expect, but this is the most important part of this whole story. The most important part that I learned that Jesus himself is the ultimate provision. The provision I really need and that we all need. I want you to know as you dive into this text, you begin to realize this story is more than you think. You're reading it as Isaac and Abraham, and as you dive into it, you realize that this story is actually three-dimensional, and there's so much more to it, and this story is really about Jesus. It's really about Jesus. Not that it didn't happen, but it's really about Jesus. And I want to show you how Jesus is the ultimate provision for all of us, okay? Because this story prefigures Jesus, and it prefigures the way God is going to save the world. He's going to save the world by taking a son up on a mountain and him being sacrificed for the sins of all people. He's, he's prefiguring that. 
And this is pointing to Jesus, this whole story, that on a mountain he will die for our sins on a cross as our substitute. You know, as we read that, I don't know if you noticed any of the foreshadowing of Jesus, but there's a lot. I just want to show you some of the similarities, just a few of them. Both are sons of promise. Both are referred to as only son and as a beloved son. Both sacrifices are offered in the region of Moriah. Just wait a second, I'll show you. Two men accompany Isaac and Jesus. Jesus has two thieves. Three days is crucial in both stories. Man, I wish I could show you how cool that is, but I don't have the time. Both carry the wood that they're to be sacrificed on. John 19, 27 talks about Jesus bearing his wood and the cross on his back. Both are laid on that wood, the wood in which they're going to be sacrificed. There's also some very significant differences between the two. One had a substitute, and one of them was the substitute. One was spared, and one was not. While Isaac was willing to give his life, and he was trusting his father, I'm amazed at the trust he has for his father, because he could have fought him off and run away, right? One is willing to lay down his life as a sacrifice for his father's sake, trusting his father. One, Jesus, willingly gave his life as a sacrifice, trusting his father. You know, before this week, or the last few weeks as I've thought about this, I've always felt like Isaac kind of got short shrift in the Bible. His dad gets 12 chapters in Genesis. His son Jacob gets 14, and he only gets three. And in his three, a lot of it's about Jacob. But after really thinking about this, this week, I no longer feel so bad for him because he gets to do something neither Abraham nor, I, nor Jacob do, which is he gets to prefigure Jesus. And I hope you, in a minute, I hope you see the beauty of this. I hope you leave here with a, a deeper sense of the beauty of the story of Jesus than ever before because it's going to get better. So let me jump in in a way that gets better. So buried in this story are several hints of this ultimate sacrifice that's going to come through Jesus. In verse 8, Abraham says, not even knowing, he's speaking so presciently about the future. He says, God himself will provide the lamb. Again, uh, that, to me, that's an underlined verse, that in 14. Let me ask you a question, and don't answer too fast, because you're probably going to get it wrong, because I got it wrong for a long time. Okay, here's the question. Um, was a lamb provided that day? And before you say anything, I want to tell you, no, it wasn't. Um, it looks like it to us, but it wasn't. When God provides for Abraham, it's not a lamb, but it's a ram, okay? There is a difference I'll get to in a minute. Verse 13, in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, and he sacrificed it. We live in beef country, so we miss it. I missed it for a long time because I live in beef country like you do. If the story read like this, where the promise was God will provide a calf, and then when he gets up there, Abraham looks over, and there's a bull caught in the thicket, we would get the difference, right? Because there is a significant difference. So here's what I really want you to see, that a lamb was not provided on that day. A ram was provided, which meant the provision for the lamb was still yet in the future. And that is why that future tense verse will in relation to lamb occurs three times in this text. I want to show you two in verse 18 and verse 14. God said, Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. And then in verse 14, to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it, the lamb, will be provided. Now tell me, in the Bible, who is called the lamb or the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Who is it? Yeah, the, this is the one time you can answer the Jesus and you get it right, okay? Jesus. That's when the lamb would be provided. 1,900 years after this event, 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of the walls of Jerusalem. In other words, in this story, in this 3D story, here's what God is saying. Abraham, I was never truly asking you to sacrifice your son, but I will. I'll provide the lamb, Jesus, the Messiah, my son, the beloved son, the lamb who takes away the sin in the world. And in fact, Abraham, I'm going to do it on this very mountain. And here is that mountain. It came to be called Golgotha, the place of the skull, a prominent hillside outside of the city walls near two prominent roads that led in the city. Golgotha is only a third of a mile from the Temple Mount where daily sacrifices were offered. Here's how close that is. When you leave today, if you leave and you head east, when you turn out here, just, you know, 50 yards is woodland, and then sunny slope and grand. Grand is a third of a mile from here. That's how close it is. That's how close Golgotha was to the place the daily sacrifices were offered. But there's even more. In verses 12 and 15, we're told that Abraham did not withhold or spare his son. But you know what? God spared him. God spared Isaac. And in the end, Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. So what about God and his son? Romans 8, 32 tells us this. He, God the Father, he who did not spare or withhold his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? There's another provision text. But he did not spare his son. And it's like God is saying, Abraham, you never had to plunge the knife. But one day, I will. I will. And if, I think if you're a parent, you get this. But if you're a dad, you know. That day when that came, that cost the father everything. Do you not know that? It's going to cost me everything, Abraham. But it gets even better, more poignant. I'm going to show you one more thing. And I never saw this until I was reading through Genesis last summer. It's why you want to keep reading through the Word of God. God will show you new things over time. Okay, here's what I want you to, to, to see. That the person having the conversation with Abraham in this story is Jesus. It's the angel of the Lord, second person of the Trinity. So I want to read verses 15 to 18, knowing that it's Jesus who's talking. So the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the, on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And when you read that word offspring in English, it sounds plural, at least it does to me, but in Hebrew, it's singular, and it's the Hebrew word seed, one seed. Through one seed, I'm going to bless all nations. And that is extremely significant. It's very significant. Because here's what Jesus is saying through him. Through one seed, all nations will be blessed through you. 
And do you want to know who the seed is? I want to show you two texts in the Bible, Genesis 3 and Galatians 3, that talk about the seed. So first, in Genesis 3, it's after the fall, and God's talking to the serpent in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And it says, then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, which is the word seed, it's singular, and he, that seed, he will strike your head. I like how the NIV says it. He will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. Seed is here. Who's this referring to? In Genesis 3.15, it's the first promise of the Messiah, the one who would come and make everything right and who would destroy Satan and his power by crushing his head. And then Paul, in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 16, he says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. There's that 3D. He was telling Abraham the gospel in advance. All nations will be blessed through you. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is who? Who is Christ. Now, here's why I'm showing you this. Who's telling him this in these verses? It's Jesus. And here's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, when it hit me, like, oh my gosh, this is Jesus talking to him. Here's what Jesus is saying. Through your one seed. Through your one seed, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Abraham, it's me. I'm the seed. I'm the lamb. And in 1900 years, I'm going to climb this mountain with wood on my back, and I'm going to lay on it willingly, and I'm going to give my life for the sins of everybody that's ever lived in the world, including the sins for, for years. And Abraham, I'm going to take the knife willingly on this very space, and I'm going to take the nails willingly. Abraham, the truth is, this was, this was stressful, but the truth is, is really you gave nothing in all of this. But the truth is, I'm going to give everything. Everything that seed and through me all nations on earth will be blessed I stand in awe I stand in awe of God I stand in awe of Jesus do you not stand in awe of Jesus I think this story is so beautiful when I get into the 3D I am eternally grateful for him and that he gave everything for me that he allowed the knife to be plunged so to speak into his chest that he took the nails for me I find this deeply moving so profound this story and the story of Jesus, that he's the ultimate provision for us, that he would give his sins on the, he would give his sins, not his sins, he would sacrifice himself, offer himself, perfect as he was for our sins. So we come to communion. We're going to have three tables here. Um, and we're, we're, I want us to come to this really thinking about Jesus as the ultimate provision, that he's more important than any other provision in my life. God cares about providing, the ultimate provision is Jesus. And so as we come to the table, um, you're going to be given the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice. A few words will be said if you would stay. Take your time. Don't feel rushed. If there's people behind you, take the bread, take the juice, leave your cup there. Um, let them speak some words over you, some significant words. And 
If you need a gluten-free option, it's in the back on the north. And anybody who follows Jesus, you don't have to be a member here to, to take part of this. We invite you to, to come up. My servers can come on up. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 says that we ought to examine ourselves before we take this cup. We need to take this serious. So Jesus gave all for me. And this is a chance for me to ask the question, am I giving all for him? None of us perfectly, but where am I with him? So take a minute, pray and reflect. And then once we start, as you feel led and you're ready, come on up and take from the Lord's table. So let's take a minute before the Lord, quietly in prayer, to just reflect on our own heart and where we are in our standing with God right now. Luke 22 says they left and found things just as Jesus had told them so they prepared the Passover when the hour came Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer and he took bread gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them Jesus said this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me take eat in the same way after the supper he took the cup Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you, poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Take and drink. So as you're uh, ready and prepared, come to one of the tables and let's come to the table of the Lord, knowing what he gave and did for us.
you're able, would you stand? We'd like to finish with a worship because does not the Lamb of God and the Father deserve our worship? So let's worship Him. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all people said 1 Corinthians 6 19 to 20 Paul says you're not your own you were bought with a price so honor him with your 
bodies. Okay? He gave everything for me. And he asked for everything back. What he asked of me is just carry your cross daily and follow me. Would you carry your cross daily and follow me? So can we be that kind of people? Are you not tired of American consumer Christianity that is really just ultimately about me? I know I am in my own heart. Like, do you know how desperately Emporian is to see people who follow Jesus all out, who give everything back for him? Can we be that kind of people? Does he not deserve it? Does he not deserve it? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the reality that you gave everything. You spared Isaac but you would not spare your own son. I can't imagine the sacrifice to you. And Lord Jesus, that you carried that wood, you laid on that wood, you willingly took the knife, you took the nails for me. And I can't imagine it. I am so thankful, eternally grateful for the salvation you've given me. And I thank you that in all the things I need, that you're my ultimate provision, the thing I most need. So help me stay close to you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As your server said to you, this means you are deeply loved. So 12th, you are sent as people beloved by the God to carry your cross daily to follow him. All right.